So I think um, moving from such a from one different system to another prepares you for thinking about politics. And a lot of my parents' friends are all conservative. You know, Russian immigrants are notorious for this. They they hate socialism so much that they turn into Ayn Rand. I don't know if you found this to be true on places like Twitter, because when you criticize the left and the right, you come off looking like a centrist on Twitter. When I don't consider myself a centrist at all, in reality, it's just I don't trust people with ideology. Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the show where I talk to movers and shakers in Russia-focused journalism and academia. On today's episode, we'll be talking about think tanks, Twitter, America's Wilsonian bias, mafia rule as an economic response, and more, of course. This one covers a lot of ground. I'm not sure how I feel about DC. I worked at this place called... uh the Center for Defense Information. That's Sevaganitsky, an associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto. He researches how international forces like war and globalization shape democracy and domestic reforms. Seva was born in Leningrad and immigrated to the United States as a boy, but we'll get to that later. Here, he's talking about his brief stint in Washington, D.C., where he conducted some pretty interesting interviews. Uh, which actually, I guess, it sounds bad, but it's the kind of place that figures out you know, where defense spending is being wasted. Oh, all right. Well, that doesn't sound bad. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not evil. Uh, it's a legit place. B- Bruce Blair used to run it. I think it's defunct now. But it was in it was in Dupont Circle. It was um, right next to the Carnegie Building. So right in the heart of that think tank world. And uh, that was my first job. And it was this Russia project, this wing called Washington Profile, where we were going to uh, connect Russian people and American people. And we're going to explain what each country was like. So like a totally unrealistic, utopian task. But it was... Get Phil Donahue and Vladimir Posner to come in and assist. That's right. Anybody we could. I mean, we interviewed all these people. That was basically my job is interviewing hundreds of people, like Richard Pearl and Ralph Nader and Fiona Hill and all these weird interviews like Kurt Vonnegut. That was a really you got, you interviewed Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, that was a very strange interview. Interesting. He must have been pretty old at that point. Oh yeah, this was toward the end of his life, and he didn't do interviews at this point. Is what I was told. And he was what just really eager to talk about Russia. Well, I knew that he had a soft spot for Russian literature. Oh, okay. Right. So I called his PR person or whatever, and I said the interview is going to be about Russian literature, and I I was like pretending I was straight from Russia, like so I had to put on this thick Russian. I was like. I only talk about literature. We're very interested. <laughs> like this super fake Russian accent. And I, and I had to do the interview with Vonnegut in my fake accent, which was a very surreal experience. But he was like, he was super, he was super curmudgeonly, you know, the usual thing. Very cranky. I think he, the crankiness is probably what prevents his books from being great. I think that's my personal view. But yeah, but he, uh, he told me he was going to kill himself after the interview was over. So uh, I was... I asked him what his final words would be. I forget what he said. I think he said something positive, like things were beautiful. Everything was beautiful. Seva Gunitsky, professor, Seva Gunitsky, is a scholar, obviously, and listeners of this podcast might remember that I'm a doctoral school dropout twice. 
So naturally, I asked how Seven managed to make a career in a field that chewed me up and spit me out. Well, how did you get into to academia? Because I can tell you that I, I have personally quit two doctoral programs. <laughs> uh, oh, shit. How, after how many years? So each one about two years, put in about two years. <laughs> the first one was history at, at uh, Berkeley, and the second one was actually poli-sci at UConn. And uh, I could not stand political science, but it's mainly because for my own shortcomings, I just couldn't wrap my head around the both the quantitative aspects and the sort of like rigid science of it. But you know, my my great respect to those who can hang with it. But how did you come to this uh, unusual line of work? Well, the third year is the worst, by the way, because that's when you have to make that pivot. You have to make that move from... Right. Well, that's why I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard because you can't always predict. Uh, you have people who are very good as consumers and critiquers of, of literature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when it comes time to become to make that switch from consumer to producer, that's, that's hard. I don't know. I think uh, for some people it takes knowing a specific thing in advance. For other people, it's because they just don't want to work in the real world. I think that was true for me. But so what is your background? Like, how did, did you always know you wanted to be a scholar? Or was it something that you decided on when you, like you say, you, you, you were fleeing the real world? Yeah, well, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I think part of it has to do with moving into such a different political culture as a kid from the Soviet Union to the U.S. So you grew up in the U.S., but you, you, you now live and work in Canada. So I, I was born in Leningrad, and I spent my first uh, 11 years in Russia, in the Soviet Union. And then moved, we moved to the U.S., and then I've been working in Canada for the last uh, seven years. So I think uh, moving from such a from one different system to another prepares you for thinking about politics. I mean, like, I remember when we, when we started to move to the U.S., when we prepared to move, I wasn't sure what America was like. I had no idea what America was like, but I was pretty sure you had to sell things. Like, I, I think for movies, that's what I could gather. You have to sell stuff to make it. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to train myself to sell things. I was 10, you know, I was like trying to figure it out. And my parents let me, uh, sell all their furniture because, you know, you can only take so much with you when, when you move at that time. Very limited. And so I'd, I'd sell our furniture and I'd go to the metro. And then by the late 80s in Leningrad and other places, you'd have these people appearing by the metro stations who were selling apples and icons and just junk, you know. And I'd try to bargain with them with my furniture money and they, they would yell at me. And so I was like seriously training to be a capitalist, like training like, like Rocky, you know. And then, uh, and then we get here, and I was like, oh, here's a refugee organization to help you with this. Here's a sponsor family. They'll give you shoes or whatever. Here are some gifts from the Jewish organization. So my initial encounter with America was not this hard-nosed capitalist system where you have to buy and sell uh, but something much more about communal cooperation, um, social ties, uh, informal networks overlaid by this government support system as well. I mean, we got government cheese too when we first came. And a lot of my parents' friends are all conservative. You know, Russian immigrants are notorious for this. They, they hate socialism so much that they turn into Ayn Rand. You know, it's all, it's all about bootstraps and visible hands. 
um, they vote for Trump, you know. And I just want to be like, hey, wait a minute. Do you remember how much assistance you got from the community and the government when you first came here? You know, so it's bizarre to me why the Russian immigrant community acts this way. And that's not to say, like, that's not to say it's easy for immigrants. I think Russian Jews did not have a typical immigrant experience because they came, we came at the tail end of this huge superpower confrontation, uh, which had many people invested in the outcome. And there was all this infrastructure set up for us. So I think we did have it easier than others. Technically, we were refugees. Like our official status when my family came were refugees. But I don't think we had the burden that you associate with that word. You know, it's a heavy word. And so then we moved to Flint, Michigan. Didn't Michael Moore make a whole documentary about how rotten it is? Basically, I know that's like his big home, so it's not rotten. It's the wrong word. But uh, well, are you you are you familiar with Flint, Michigan? Isn't that they have problems, right? Yeah, they have problems. They've had they've had, they've had problems for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we moved there, I think the year before we moved there, Money Magazine named it the worst city in America. I, I don't know what the, like it's based on like per capita murder rate. I'm not, I'm not sure what it was. Wonderful. And uh, I remember this, one of my first memories in Flint was like to protest this injustice. The people of Flint gathered in like public square to burn copies of Money Magazine. Really? Yeah. This is like 91, <laughs> I think, 92. With the ranking in it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were sending a signal. And I remember thinking like even then, like, you know, maybe there's a better way to like, send a signal that we're not backward than by having a public magazine burning, you know, like, but it's still better than uh, collapse era Soviet Union for sure. So I didn't know any better. I thought it was great. So Seva grew up in the United States and he now lives in Canada. He's a published tenured scholar who writes about international forces. And he's become an outspoken voice on Twitter, commenting on current events. But what are the ideas that drive his research and social media punditry? What do most Westerners get wrong about Russia that he needs to intervene? Well, there's all sorts of misperceptions, I think, on both sides. Um, and sometimes those misperceptions have justifiable origins. Uh, and I think people probably have given you all kinds of answers. Uh, but I think what I would say is the way we, let's, and by we I mean the West, perceive the end of the Cold War compared to how Russia perceives the end of the Cold War. And what I mean by that is in the West, essentially the end of the Cold War was a good thing. It's sort of an unambiguously good thing, Right the new order is born, democracy spreads, etc., etc. And this is sort of a breakthrough for global peace, the start of a new era. So in the, in the Western narrative, the geopolitical dimension and ideological dimension of the Cold War and the end of the Cold War become intertwined. Right? Democracy defeats communism, and as a result, the system shifts from bipolarity to unipolarity. Right? And because those two dimensions are intertwined in the Western imagination. Actions by Russia that signal a desire to return to a Cold War period must be motivated by some ideological opposition to the American order. And what I mean by return to the Cold War period, I think that's the kind of thing that gets misunderstood as well. Uh, the idea that 
Putin's infamous quote that uh, the Soviet collapse was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe uh, of the century. Right? The, I think the key adjective here is geopolitical. Right? He's not seeking a return to a new Cold War. This is nostalgia for former greatness. So for Russia, the end of the Cold War was the end of two very different struggles. One was the ideological struggle of communism against democracy. But it was also the end of Russian derzhavnost. So it's recognized as a great power. That is over. And that geopolitical status is quite separate from the characteristics of its internal regime. The ideological defeat is great. It's welcome, right? Few Russian elites or people really seek a return to communism. But they do seek to restore Russia's traditional sphere of influence. And this quest is a geopolitical imperative rather than just an ideological one or primarily an ideological one. So basically what I would say is one difference is that the twin victories of 1991, the ideological and the geopolitical victories, are conflated in the West, but decoupled in Russia. So, you know, the big problem is both see each other as challenging the status quo. And you don't have to really study history to realize that that's a dangerous combination, especially with the kinds of foreign policies we see on both sides now, where the U.S. has a has a foreign policy based on temper tantrums, uh, often it seems, and Russia has a foreign policy based on trolling, often it seems. That's not a good combination. How does this uh, this coupling you describe of geopolitics and ideology in the American imagination when it comes to Russia and the Soviet Union, how does that fit in with the argument of the paper you co-authored in Problems for Post-Communism last year about problematic narratives in U.S. scholarship on Russia, I'm wondering, because the, the argument there seemed to be that Americans go looking for domestic explanations for everything Russia does externally, and that you call this a Wilsonian bias. And is this, is this a related misperception to the one you just described, or is it something different? I think it's related, and I'll, I can tell you why. The, the catalyst for this paper was the Ukrainian Revolution, so five years ago already, uh, which in some ways, at least in the public imagination, was a turning point in Russian-American relations. The relationship wasn't great, obviously, but Ukraine brought out into the open, I think, for a lot of people, how bad the relationship was. And I'm sure you remember the coverage five years ago. It was like being in two separate worlds, watching the Russian and the Western coverage. In the West, it was people in the street that are protesting a corrupt puppet, a dictator. You know, this is a people's revolution. And then Russia takes advantage of the chaos with this illegal takeover in Crimea. Right? The story in Russia, you know, is completely different, right? This is an illegal coup, speaking of coups in the news, sponsored by the EU or the CIA, you know, uh, of a leader who was, you know, keep in mind, was legitimately elected in an election that was declared free. And then the whole business with the right-wing Ukrainian fascists just looking to resume their fascist collaboration. This is the Russian story, and to a large extent, still the Russian story. And I think these two very different ways of looking at the conflict are symptomatic of a broader set of misperceptions in the relationship. The U.S. analysis takes the assumption that Russian foreign policy is motivated by this adventurous, revolutionary KGB mindset of Putin, right? It's a reckless pursuit of a new Soviet empire by this unreformed KGB agent who is determined to disrupt the Western order. I'm only slightly exaggerating here what I think is for many people the conventional wisdom in Washington. Yeah, no, that, that sounds perfectly mainstream. <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, sadly. 
And of course, Russian policymakers see the world and their role in it completely different. I think they would see Russia's policy as defensive and reactive. And I would add paranoid and reactionary, but not revolutionary in some of the same ways that we think of Russia's regime as being revolutionary. So I think from Putin's perspective, he is seeking to restore what he sees as a long-standing status quo, which has now been disrupted, Russia's regional hegemony. And you restore it by pushing back against malicious Western encroachment, not by purposely being a thorn in America's side, uh, but, but sort of from Russia's perspective, taking back what they have. This is what I mean when I say that both sides see each other as challenging the status quo. And partly, of course, these views are, are self-serving, but I think they're also sincerely held in some ways. So now, what we saw in the West, uh, Andre and I, and many other people who study Russian politics, was the assumption that Russia's politics is Putin's politics. And I don't mean that he controls it, which I think we can agree that he has a, you know, a lot of control over it, but more so that the idea that Russia's foreign policy is an expression of his personal character, like this weird personalization of Russian foreign policy. Right? So we have people like McFall saying that you know, Ukraine is really all about Putin and his erratic adventurism. Or uh, people like Sostanovich, Stephen Sostanovich, saying that you know, Putin is just being impulsive. These are his own political motives. I mean, journalists write all the time about how Putin apparently has nightmares about Gaddafi. And it's, it is very much like, you know, what's, what, he's, he's coming to these policy decisions in his PJs in a cold sweat. And that's kind of the pr- impression a lot of the commentary gives. That's right. That Russian foreign policy is a pure expression of that paranoia in some ways. But you did say yourself that you think... Paranoia is a reasonable adjective for Russian foreign policy. I would say it's an institutional paranoia beyond the paranoia of any. <laughs> and look, you don't, if you're going to be invaded continuously over the centuries, you might develop a sort of institutional paranoia. But to say what these scholars said, which is that this is just about Putin's adventurism, I think reduces a centuries long national interest to the delusional whims of some bitter ideologue, right? And I think that's simplifying the picture. And of course, again, none of this excuses Russia's behavior, but it points toward essential motivations behind Russian foreign policy that domestic or leader-oriented explanations will often miss. And so if you really look at what are the continuities in Russian foreign policy, there are two drivers. The quest for primacy in its foreign relations with its neighborhood. And that often takes the form of some kind of formal empire, But the goal is basically acquiescence to Russia's primacy, whether formal empire or not. And this is sort of a a centuries-long geopolitical pursuit, sort of like America's own long-term quest for a sphere of influence. And it transcends domestic institutions, and it provides really a fundamental source of continuity in Tsarist, communist, post-communist foreign policy. So that's one thing. Second related thing is the pursuit of dirzhavnost, which I already mentioned, right? Possessing great power, being recognized as a great power. So that means elements of prestige and peer recognition, uh, seat at the table. And we see, we can understand Putin's attempts to get close to the West as part of his quest to present Russia as a partner, as an active and responsible partner. And so like primacy, this pursuit of Dijavnist is divorced from the ideological basis of Russia's domestic regime. It's concerned with power, it's concerned with status. And occasionally that gives Russian foreign policy a flexibility 
that if you only focus on Putin or what Putin wants or what autocracies do, you'll tend to miss. So that was sort of uh, the, the basic argument in the paper. And the, the term we used was the Wilsonian bias, you know, uh, after Woodrow Wilson, of course, this idea that there's a tendency in American IR and in American policymaking, I think, to overestimate how much the domestic regime influences a country's foreign policy, especially inside non-democratic regimes. There's this tight coupling of if you have this domestic regime, you act like this in foreign policy. And I think that that Wilsonian bias is pervasive and it's almost natural, right? We can see evidence for it if we're looking for evidence for it. But I think it does blind us to some of these more fundamental continuities in terms of what motivates Russian foreign policy. Does that mean that when Putin eventually goes, you don't expect a thaw in foreign relations? Well, thaws and freezes are possible. I think uh, some leaders can be more peaceful. I mean, look at Gorbachev, right? He's beloved in the West because he acquiesced to the West. So there's room for agency. It's not that structure determines everything, right? People obviously make a difference. But regardless of who comes after Putin, those fundamental geopolitical tensions are still there and they will not be affected by whoever happens to be in charge. When you talk about the structure and the institutions, I mean, what individuals do you actually have in mind? Because when it comes at least to the financial elite and the oligarchs and so on, they presumably do not share these values. They would like to continue storing their wealth in the West and sending their kids there for schooling. And it doesn't seem like it'd be in their interest to bother with this sphere, sphere of influence stuff. Or am I wrong? Well, I think for many of the elites, their interests are the same as the interests of the elites everywhere, which is exactly where do we send our kids to school? Can we store money offshore? So I think uh, that's a separate set of economic interests that are not tied to geopolitical interests. I'm not sure if we can say that oligarchs determine Russian foreign policy or any country's foreign policy. I, the role in which oligarchic interests play in foreign policy varies between countries. So no, it's not, it's not as if Russia has this, you know, Russia is this monolithic entity and it has this goal of geopolitical revenge. There's competing, sometimes parallel, sometimes distinct interests. I think that's true anywhere you look. Let's go back a moment and return to Gunitsky's early life, when he's still a young immigrant trying to find his place in this new country. How did he come to academia, and what was the research experience that put him on the path he's traveling today? And and, and so you're, you're a, a teenager living in Flint now, and my experience is that Russian Soviet Jewish immigrant family wouldn't necessarily jump for joy if their son says, oh, I'm going to go into academia because it's not the most lucrative profession. I mean, it can be very stable in that regard. It's very nice. But I wonder, did you come up against any resistance because you didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or was it all fine? Uh, I got very little guidance uh, in terms of my career, which I think is a good thing. But I think I had, a, I had a very positive experience doing academic research as an undergraduate. It was, my, it was my very first research experience, and I did it as part of an honors thesis as, a, as an undergrad. What was it on? Well, I was interested in how people operate in places where the state is weak, uh, where it can't do basic things like uh, property protection or making sure contracts on, are enforced. Plus, the university gives you money to go places even as an undergraduate yeah it was a, it was a program in the honors college that you know if you can have if you have a good proposal we'll give you money 
So I thought that sounds good. Let's go to Russia. And so, uh, because Russia in the 90s was very close to what you might call a, a failed state. And I was interested in the rise of organized crime in Russia as a response to state failure. You know, this is still with us. There's a, the reason Putin is popular is because he says, I rescued you from the 90s. So I went to visit Moscow and St. Petersburg to write my undergraduate thesis. It's basically economics of Russian organized crime. And uh, I was very lucky. I had some friends and sort of friends of friends, my parents' friends. I uh, was able to get in touch with some businessmen. I'm doing air quotes right now. Yeah. Uh, and they put me in touch with other businessmen and, and that, so on. And, and this way, I was actually able to talk to a few real members of organized crime groups in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and also journalists and city officials, other people. This one guy I spoke with, Puchik, he was uh, a member of the Tambovskaya gang, one of the biggest gangs in St. Petersburg at that time. He was killed a few months after I spoke with him. There had been like, he said there had been like 12 attempts on his life. I think maybe half of those were real attempts. But eventually they succeeded. So it was a wild time, obviously, as a, as a college student, hanging out with these people. And obviously, I wasn't able to ask them details like, who did you kill? But I, I was more interested in the general stuff anyway, division of labor, uh, what functions they perform. And were they fairly candid with you? or They were, especially when it comes to uh, general questions like that, that treat, treated their organization as a sort of, as a business. Plus, you know, people love to talk about themselves. This, is, this podcast is evidence of that, right? As, as there's so many others. Uh-huh, yeah. That's my bread and butter, yeah. Exactly. You can always take advantage of that fact. Uh, so people were fairly open about certain things. But it was a weird thing because, you know, you get all sorts of instant privileges. Like, you don't have to go through the metal detectors to enter your casino or whatever. And then, pe- you know, you come in, somebody gives you a cigar and a drink. It's all very vulgar. But it was still disappointing to come back to the real world as a low, lowly undergraduate student. Now I have to sit in my room and write this thesis. So you're saying when you went into these casinos, you as an undergraduate student were handed a drink and a cigar or that the bosses were? No, no I was uh, along with them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Very good. It was a requirement, I think, because everybody seemed to get one. Did you? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you were smoking cigars anyway, but were you under any pressure to kind of exaggerate your manliness in these circumstances no because i think the performance was on them i think people being interviewed by who they see somebody as an american academic right they're the ones that are interested in putting on a show and part of that is yes you have to drink with them and you have to drink more than necessary but that's part of the job that's that was that was for me part of the trip and by the way uh i also try to diversify and not just speak to these people but one lesson that still stands out for me is during that trip. I talked to this Russian academic who specialized in organized crime. And the fascinating thing I noticed was what he told me was happening now in the world of Russian organized crime is what everybody else was telling me was happening two years ago. Do you see what I mean? So that confirmed my suspicion that it's not enough to just you know sit and read books about the world, especially when it comes to a topic so hidden and so misunderstood like organized crime. You have to actually go out there and talk to these people. Of course, since then, all I've done is sit in my office and read books. So what the hell do I know? So anyway, so I came back and I wrote this paper arguing that the argument was, as I saw it, organized crime was a self-moderating force because it got a stake in the system. 
So in the mid-90s and onward, you, you had these criminal groups that are sort of entering into long-term partnerships with businesses. And so they become subject to all these fundamental economic laws, setting their fees and uh, competing for clients, et cetera, et cetera. So pretty soon you have to start offering things besides threats. So if you're, if you're a real Krisha, if, uh, you have to provide something more than just like, hey, be ashamed if something happened to your kiosk. And this is very similar, by the way, to how states form. And you've probably encountered some of this in your graduate education, where basically a stationary bandit or a roving bandit settles down and becomes stationary. Now his incentives beyond plunder. Or like, like a virus that, you know, that doesn't want to kill off its host too quickly. And so this is Charles Tilly stuff. Really goes back to St. Augustine, based, the idea that governments are just mafias that settle down. Right? It's a very subversive idea, and I love teaching it at the undergraduate level because some kids just get it instantly, like, of course. And then other people, especially people well socialized into the idea that government is good and government will help you, they just have a, a lot of problems with that concept that there is no social contract, really, that governments are things that crave coercive capacity, uh, and they're checked by other forces, you know, whose support they need or whose, whose acquiescence they need. So this is, by the way, why it's hard for me to place myself politically. I don't know if you found this to be true on places like Twitter, because when you criticize the left and the right, you come off looking like a centrist on Twitter, when I don't consider myself a centrist at all. In reality, it's just I don't trust people with ideology. Like, I don't trust corporations, I don't trust the government, I don't see one or the other as necessarily my savior. So the best kind of government, then, is one that realizes that the worst people are going to be in charge and pits those terrible people against each other. Anyway, sorry, that's a, that's a tangent. Back to the trip. So lots of monopoly and violence, weak state. So eventually, under Putin, the state comes back and says, forget it, we are reasserting our monopoly on force. You know, if you think of a state as... You know, organization that has a monopoly on legitimate force over a territory. This is what Russia has done since the 90s. So the argument essentially was organized crime is an economic response to missing markets, huge missing markets in things like property protection, contract enforcement, etc. Et and this isn't anything new. Like Federico Varisi and Vadim Valkov were saying similar things at the time. I thought I was saying something new writing this thesis. But I, one reason I also liked writing it is it's like a reasonable rationale to something that's often described in these romanticized terms or irrational terms, the mafia state, all that stuff. You know, it's not pathological. It's not part of the Russian character. It's not like some kind of a hidden element of Russian nature. It's, it's an economic response. Uh, I hate that quote, you know, that mystery inside enigma bullshit. It's just people are people, you know. But more fundamentally, I think uh, more generally, like, what I took away from writing that is even talking about organized crime versus the free market is misleading because in some situations, namely in Russia in the 90s, organized crime can actually sustain market enterprises, although at a very high cost to that enterprise. Because it's, it's performing the functions that a state would in other circumstances, you're saying? That's right. The, it, the, a state within other circumstances would perform, like enforcing property rights. And this is how naive I was, okay? So I wrote this undergraduate thesis and I uh, managed to get it published in some journal. I thought, oh, the article is going to come out, and it's going to cause a splash, and then my uncle will be in trouble with the mob. Because my uncle was a business owner in, in Moscow. He was in charge of a factory. So just, just, like, just thinking back, just the unearned arrogance of that. You know? 
Like, oh no, I don't want to endanger my family members with my academic insights. So I published it under my grandmother's maiden name. And then of course, like four people read it, like nobody cares, but whatever, I'm happy with it. People still cite it once in a while. It was my first venue into, into research. Anyway, that's a very long, this is a very long interview. I'm sorry. You no, got- no, no, no. It's, it's funny that you mentioned this, the kind of the way academic writing is, and I'm sure you've heard the comparison. It's like the difference between pop music and jazz or, or pop me like it's like three chords for 3000 people or 3000 chords for, for uh, three people. And so scholarly writing, you obviously have a very small audience and you're, you're able to include a lot more complexity and then more popular styles of writing. You've got to, I mean, dumbing it down maybe isn't the, the right way to describe it, but the, the pivot I'm trying to make here is you're quite active on Twitter, and I don't know if that's necessarily the most common thing for a lot of political scientists or for scholars in general. I'm sure it's more common now than it was five years ago, but I wonder, do you think that, do, I mean, do you kind of recommend that to more political scientists to get involved in polemics and discussions of current events, or do you kind of think that it's not for the faint of heart? It's hard to say. Because the, the one, one issue I've found when talking to scholars who study Russia is that f- this isn't true of everyone, obviously, but a lot of scholars, especially the ones that are maybe that have been studying, working for a long time and have kind of settled into a routine of sabbatical teaching, book writing and so on. They kind of they just go from one niche issue that they're writing a book about or article about. And they they kind of the rest of things that are happening in Russia are just in the background. And so if you were to actually try to talk to a lot of this is my experience. Anyway, if you talk, there are a lot of scholars. If you try to talk to them, I bump into them at conferences and so on. And I'll say, oh, did you see the story today, this morning or last evening about this thing that happened? You know, Navalny's going to start a labor union. It's just like stone face. You know, it's like, oh, I haven't seen that. So I wonder if, if you find this to be a problem in the field, or maybe I'm just, I'm bitter. What do you think? There's a benefit to stepping back from daily news flow. And I do this myself. Like, I, I go a few days without really tweeting anything, because I find it helpful in organizing your thinking about other things. I think it's easy to sink into the flow of daily news. But that said, I have absolutely nothing against Twitter as a research tool. I think it's been super helpful. Like for a long time, I waited. I registered my account in 2012 or something, but I didn't start posting until 2017. And I waited to get tenure. And not even for the reasons you might, not because I thought I would say something crazy that would get me fired, but because I thought it was going to cut into my time too much. And that if I am successful on Twitter, that immediately suggests that I'm spending time on it when I could be spending time on research. In the same way that there are all these perverse incentives about teaching. At a research university, if you're an excellent teacher, some people are going to think, well, that's nice, but that means this person has spent a lot of time on teaching at the expense of research. But I haven't found that to be the case with Twitter. It's not a zero-sum game between research and Twitter, uh, for the most part. I think in many ways, it's opened me to new research agendas and people's ideas that I haven't seen and otherwise would not have seen. So because you're you're talking to scholars and journalists and some of them have have ideas that you hadn't considered? Scholars and journalists and historians, people who comment on news, people who just make weird comments. That's been helpful in opening up uh, intellectual horizons, if I can be so lofty about Twitter. 
So I found it to be helpful. And I think uh, a healthy mix of using it and not using it is beneficial. I mean, it, it is the ultimate drug in terms of just like pigeons pecking at buttons and they get a crumb uh, randomly, semi-randomly. Like it's just, it hits all the buttons, right? So I could totally see the abyss staring at me, but it's, uh, after a while, it's, uh, it poisons the soul a little, uh, I think. That's my interview with Seva Gunitsky, an associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto. His book, Aftershocks, Great Powers and Domestic Reforms in the 20th Century, which Foreign Affairs named one of the best books of 2017, is available from Princeton University Press. If you're on Twitter, I can't recommend Seva's feed strongly enough. You can find links to both these things, his book, his Twitter account, in the description of today's episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider visiting patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can contribute as much or as little as you like to the production costs of the show. I'm also happy to get feedback from listeners on Twitter, where my DMs are open to all. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Дайте, что ли, карты в руки Погадать на короля Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля Погадать на короля Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля Эх-ха! Завтра дальняя дорога Выпадает королю У него деньжонок много А я денежки люблю Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля